Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. Former Senator Bill Nelson recently spoke at Southeastern University in Lakeland, where the new American Center for Political Leadership presented Nelson with an award for his long public service. It was a rare public appearance since Rick Scott narrowly defeated the incumbent Nelson in last year's Senate race. In a conversation with the ACPL's director, former Congressman Dennis Ross, and with former state senator Rick Dantzler, Nelson, a Democrat, spoke of the importance of personal relationships among politicians. Rick Dantzler kicked off the conversation. Uh, One of the questions that I had kind of right out of the gate, uh, when you were running in your last election, I went to an event for you in Orlando, and I heard you make the comment that in this political environment, as crazy as it seems, up is down and down is up. And I thought about that a lot, and I wonder what you meant by that. Because it is. <laughs> I mean, what you would normally expect in the body politic of the functioning of the Constitution, the gentlemanly way that in order to carry on a dialogue in the public discourse, in the public arena, there has to be a a modicum of civility. And we don't see a lot of that. And it's getting worse. And it didn't just start with this last administration. Uh, I've seen it very much change over the 18 years that I was in the Senate. I've especially seen it change since those early days of going to the state legislature where all of us would go up there and uh, those of us who had young children uh, would all bring them up for the two months of the session and we'd rent apartments and our kids would be in and out of everybody else's apartment and it didn't make any difference whether you were an R or a D. We were all friends and then we'd go out at, at night for supper and that was an accepted way of doing the public's business. Now, that was back in the dark ages. Uh, that was in the 70s. And, uh, and yet, I, I saw that uh, continue in my days in the House. For example, Tip O'Neill, the speaker, and Bob Michael, the top Republican, they'd fight like cats and dogs. But at the end of the day, They were personal friends. And so when it came time to do the deal, taught in college campuses about public service, one of the case studies is 1983. Social Security was within six months of going bankrupt. The president was Ronald Reagan. The speaker was Tip O'Neill. Two old Irishmen that used to fight all the time. But they had a personal friendship too. And they decided, we're going to solve this. Now, 
Social Security was a deadly issue. If you dare voted on any cuts on Social Security, you can be sure that your opponent in the next election was going to take you out. But Social Security was going bankrupt in six months. Those two old Irishmen got together and they said, uh, we're going to solve this thing and we're going to take it off the table in the next election as something to beat your opponent over the head with. They said, we're going to appoint a special blue ribbon committee. They're going to come back and report to the Congress. We passed it overwhelmingly. It made Social Security that was almost bankrupt financially sound, actuarially sound for the next half century. Now, there is a good example of getting something done and something successfully. But can you imagine that being done today? So you see the changes that have occurred, and it all comes back to the personal relationship and how do you get along with each other? Uh, I told uh, Bill Rufty earlier tonight, I said, uh, go back and see what Marco Rubio said immediately after my farewell address. And one of the things that he told, funny things, that the Senate just broke up laughing when he said this. He said, you know the worst thing Bill Nelson ever said about me? He said I was a moderate. <laughs> That's good. And, and so, you know, that's the kind of relationship that we need. Here, here. What happened? What caused it to change? Well, a number of things. Again, not talking about the present situation, because each of you have your ideas about that. But you have to go back to... In the old days, before I ever arrived in Congress, when Congress was in session and there wasn't the jet airplane and the members took their families to Washington and they all got to know each other as human beings, it was so much easier to do that relationship. Uh, and yet, we've had political combat ever since uh, the beginning of the country. We've had that throughout the ages, sharp political debate. But at the end of the day, you've got to do something. And you've got to have an environment in which to work it. So along the way, what's happened is that members don't go to Washington. They're there Tuesday through Thursday, and they're gone. And they don't build those relationships. Uh, everything is structured around the two parties. One of the few times that the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate met together was in the immediate aftermath of September the 11th. And we all got together in the Senate dining room. And there were a lot of tears. And we deferred to the senators from the states that had been attacked. And there was unity. I remember when the Capitol Police kept saying, don't come back 
after we had all evacuated Capitol Hill. We all wanted to come back, and we all ended up spontaneously on the steps of the, the, west, the uh, east front steps and spontaneously broke out in singing God Bless America. So there, are, there was unifying moments, but they are less and less frequent. Another thing, Rick, that's contributed to it is uh, the gerrymandering of districts. Now that's not so in the Senate, but it's certainly true in the House. Uh, if a congressional district does not represent the overall composition of the area and is drawn with a computer to slice and dice the precincts to determine the outcome of the general election, which you can determine with computers, then you have just one point of view. What you need as a representative of the country is a lot of points of view. And then when you go to Washington, your point of view is not the only one. You ought to be listening to the other people and their point of view. Geographical, philosophical, religious, racial, the whole bit. And yet, we are constantly dividing instead of unifying. And that is what the structures increasingly are promoting. I, I don't mean to get back to this gerrymandered district issue, but it is such a big thing. Um, I'm wondering if it has lessened crossover voters. You know, you talked about how it was in the 70s, uh, I started in the 80s, and as many of my contributions as I got from Democrats, I got from Republicans, and I had as, just as much Republican support as I had Democratic support, and it just doesn't seem like that is the case anymore. And is it entirely gerrymandered districts, or does it get to other things such as where we get our news, and do voters distinguish between cable news and entertainment or, or news, you, you know what I'm saying. It, I guess I've got some follow-up questions about that general theme, but where people get their news, do you think that is, has affected this as well? It's all of the above, uh, certainly. A democracy, in order to be able to work, you have to work from a common base of information that people will generally accept. If you do not have that ability to accept this information, then it's going to be hard to get agreement. It's going to be hard to listen to the other fellow and his point of view. And so the more that that is accentuated by virtue of how people get their news is clearly one of the contributing factors. Uh, who among us reads the newspaper cover to cover? Well, good for you. Uh, is it just the ledger or are you reaching out into other sources of news as well? Uh, and so this is a problem.
So you can pretty well, when you go into a household, if they have it on a certain cable TV, you can pretty well tell their politics right off the bat. That makes it more and more difficult for us to govern between the 40-yard lines. This is Florida Matters. We're taking a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is Florida Matters. We're listening to a conversation with former Senator Bill Nelson, recorded recently at Southeastern University's American Center for Political Leadership. Senator Nelson is speaking with former Congressman Dennis Ross, who's also the director of the ACPL, and with former State Senator Rick Dantzler. Senator, you talked about you know, being interested in, in politics since as, as in high school, and, and um, uh, I can relate to that. Was there anything in particular that motivated you? Was there an event? Was there a person? Or what would you say was the genesis of your interest in public service that started at such an early age? When you were in high school, did you have a Kiwanis-sponsored key club? Actually, we did. <laughs> I was in the Lions Club. I was in Leo. I was in Key Club. <laughs> okay. Well, of course, back in the dark ages, Kiwanis sponsored the boys' Key Club and the girls' Kiets. Later, they merged, uh, as they should have. But it was a service organization, a service to your community and to your high school. This organization ended up having a profound effect on me, not only in high school, because I got involved into the political part of Key Club International. But years later, when I come home from the Army to practice law in my hometown of Melbourne, I go out, I join the Kiwanis Club, and I go out to the high school, and it's in the middle of Vietnam, and all the clubs, the social service clubs, had disbanded. And so I talked to the school uh, principal to see if I could get it started up. And as a result, we got a great little key club started. And I, later, uh, that next spring, I took them to their state convention. At the last minute, they had a cancellation of the speaker. They asked me to speak. And I called up my college roommate who was practicing law in Jacksonville. Bruce Smathers oh was my, my college God. roommate. <laughs> and I said, uh, get a date. I have a date flying in. I'll make the speech and we'll all go out on the town. And Bruce brought Grace. Ah. <laughs> So Key Club has had a big impact <laughs> on my life. Before we leave the political intrigue issue entirely, I have a question about the political parties. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a Democrat raising a certain amount of money for the Democratic Party, a Republican elected official raising money for the Republican Party. The parties need a certain amount of money in order to function, and they they, they have a role. But it sure seems like members of Congress are required to spend an inordinate amount of their time raising money for the parties. One, is that true? And two, is it healthy? And three, if it's not healthy, is there anything we can do about it? 
it's not so much raising money for the party, it's raising money for yourself to be able to be competitive in the next election. And when you get in an election that is as big as the third largest state in the union, and you're talking about millions of dollars, and you go around uh, scratching with your little tin cup uh, trying to raise the, the nickels and dimes for that kind of size of a, a budget just to run uh, TV. If you want to run a thousand gross rating points in Florida in every TV market for one week, it's going to cost you $3 million just one week, and a 1,000 gross rating points is not a heavy buy. It's a, a moderate buy. So you see what it's become, and it's gotten to the point that what are being elected uh, are people of uh, enormous individual wealth. The One of the exceptions, by the way, I think in this Democratic primary right now for president is the billionaire is still polling at 1% or 2%. Uh, but money talks, and money influences elections. And it's becoming all the more accentuated because now everybody does not get their news from television in a campaign like they used to. And so now we have the Facebook ads and the digital ads and the campaigns. All right, now, if that's not enough, how about now the influence outside of the United States of foreign countries? Russia did it the last two times. You watch. There are going to be other countries that are going to get in on it this time. And it's very subtle. It's placing an article that people believe they're reading uh, online and they believe it that it's true. And it may have nothing to do with the truth. And of course, this works both ways against both parties, as we will see. And as we are seeing as we speak, as Zuckerberg is testifying in front of Congress. And where this is all going and still protecting the uh, freedom of speech, the First Amendment uh, freedoms, uh, is, is all going to be tested in the future. And it's going to be severely tested. Because if you can't have an election, that there is a basic reservoir of what is and is not fact then it becomes very dangerous as to what the outcome is going to be on misinformation instead of factual information. This is a strange question, perhaps. Any advice on how to pick a news source? How do you know who to believe? Well, one of the things I've found myself doing is turning off the cable news. Uh, it's just more of the same. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, and often the people up there rendering their opinion don't know half as much as I know about the issue, and yet they are being the ones that are communicating 
out. Uh, I think you've got to find a good, reputable news source. I'm not trying to play to the home crowd, but <laughs> the ledger, one way or another, is going to be fairly good at the end of the day. You get into your national papers, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you're going to get uh, good information out of those papers. They're going to have their biases, but the question is, you've got to work your way through those biases. Um, someone has asked, when you began your political career, what was the biggest challenge you faced? Well, I was just happy as a clam. <laughs> uh, I was scared to death because it was the... Uh, Election of 72, and at the top of the ticket was Richard Nixon and George McGovern, and I knew that George McGovern wasn't going to get many votes in my uh, legislative district, which was all of Brevard County. It was a multi-member yep. district back then, yep. all of Brevard County and the eastern half of Orange County. And so Grace and I worked it like dogs. Uh, We'd knock on doors, and she'd be standing there with me, and it didn't take me too long to know that I was wasting her time. She was so good. She was a natural, and she was a brand-new bride. So I put Grace on the other side of the street, and we'd go down opposite sides of the street knocking on doors, and we could cover twice as much territory. And I've got to tell you what happened to Grace. She came to a house. She couldn't get to the front door because of the sprinklers. And she's this new bride, and she is just, she's approaching every front door with a messianic mission <laughs> that she's going to get the votes for her husband. And uh, so she can't get in the front door because of the water, but the garage door is open. So she walks into the open garage, into the inside door, and rings the doorbell. It's not the doorbell. It's the garage door closer. <laughs> and she's stuck in a dark garage. And she doesn't know what to do, so she just bangs on the door, hoping somebody's home. Sure enough, the gentleman of the house is there. He opens the door. There's Grace in his dark garage. She doesn't know what to say. She says, sir, will you vote for my husband? <laughs> That's great. Um, someone has asked an intriguing question. Honesty and advertising, and maybe this gets to the need to have some money to fight back, but how do you confront lies? I think what they're asking is, is there any way to rebut lies or last-minute mailings? That's the word, mailings. And is there any way to prevent this? Uh, it's very difficult, particularly if you don't have the money in which you can respond in that medium. Uh, and that is all the more difficult in a state as big as ours. It would be a lot easier as some of our colleagues in the city council here uh, to respond in a more confined area. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult. And, and there again is, now this is not the first time 
that lies have been used in American politics. Uh, this is as old as the country is, indeed as old as the history of civilization wherever there was an attempt to have some kind of election. Uh, by the way, uh, another contributing factor to one of the polarization is when Hamilton and Jefferson were going with each other, communication was slow. And uh, it was the cooling saucer principle. The hot coffee that was going to burn you had a chance to cool off. Communication is instant today. And now communication is not only by the airways and telephone and so forth. It's a, it's a very impersonal communication by email, by text, by Facebook, and all of the other uh, apps. And it's, uh, it's much more difficult to root out the truth in those circumstances. I think someone in the audience has an interest in running for office. Uh, this person has asked if you do have an interest in running for office, and I'm going to paraphrase this to some extent, do those opportunities just all of a sudden present themselves, or is there something you can do to go out and try to make it happen? It could happen either way, but what my recommendation to you would be is prepare yourself. Uh, first of all, examine yourself. Are you in it for the right reason? And then, if you got your mind set on a particular thing, prepare yourself and really uh, bone up on the issues. Uh, and whatever it is, try to articulate what your feeling is about those issues and go out and start talking to people. That was what was so wonderful about going door to door. Uh, you learn a lot about life when you force yourself to do things in life that ordinarily you would not do. And normally you would not go and knock on 20,000 doors in life. But each of those doors, you learn something about humanity. Just the way they presented themselves, whether or not it looked like that they were having a rough life, the smells that came out of the open door. And then something you really learned about was dogs. <laughs> we all have some door-to-door -door stories about that. Yes, sir. I have what would be a really good last question, Dennis, but do you have a question before no, no, you would you like for me to do that? Uh, this person has asked a poignant question, and that is with things as polarized as they are, how can we come back together again? I don't know the answer to that. I know that ultimately the answer is you're going to have to elect folks like Dennis that can do a deal and that is respectful to the other person. And right now, this toxic environment is such that the two sides don't want to talk to each other. Senator, uh, you are a son of Florida. 
and you have always served for the right reasons. It's been a pleasure for me to be a part of this tonight. Thank you, Rick. You've been listening to a conversation with former Senator Bill Nelson, recorded at Southeastern University in Lakeland. If you missed any of today's show or any previous shows, you can find them on the Florida Matters podcast. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.